Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Deb Corum about some of the recent developments in legislation in relation to respect at work. First, let me tell you about Deb. Deb is the CEO of two award-winning compliance and governance organisations, SafeTrack and BoardTrack, which support organisations and their boards to implement programs that help to build a culture of integrity. A lawyer by trade, Deb's international career has spanned New York and the UK, and she's a passionate advocate for business to adopt a staff-first ethos and move beyond the checkerbox approach to compliance. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Deb. Thank you so much, Helga. So, Deb, as always, before we talk about the Respect at Work developments, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me a story about young Deb that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today? Oh, young Deb wanted to be a vet, but when she watched too much James Herriot, decided that it wasn't a good idea and moved ahead with wanting to be a lawyer. (laughs) initially to protect the rights of cows. (laughs) (laughs) There's an odd position there, but... (laughs) Tell me more. Yeah, protecting the rights of cows, I'm intrigued. You have to tell us more about that. I thought their treatment of cows giving birth on on all creatures great and small was truly insensitive to them and their um, baby womanhood. Right. And I thought they needed to be treated with more respect. Now, I never imagined that that would transfer into me actually working for an organisation and running an organisation that is really about maintaining respect in the workplace. Um, (laughs) I've taken a very long journey to get there. I became a lawyer. I was a lawyer for a number of years. And I actually found maybe the injustice of the legal system, one that I didn't want to work in, one that protects the rights of those with money without it, it didn't sit well with me. And I moved on to a passionate interest in technology and then somehow went full circle back around into compliance and 
passionately advocate the, the rights of humans now, though I have done some training courses in cows. Um, <laughs> and that's where I sit today. <laughs> well, I'm loving the common themes in there. Um, the two common themes that I'm hearing are passion and cows. But anyway, the, the cows are a looser, looser thread. But thinking about the respect at work developments, maybe let's just start. Can you give us some background and context and then maybe tell us what the newest developments are? So the respect at work legislation is a result of the recommendations by Kate Jenkins into sexual harassment in the workplace and mm -hmm. what we can be doing to prevent it. Now, there was a total of uh, 66 recommendations that were made within that report and of those, 12 were uh, recommended legislative amendments, six of which have been formed into legislation that aims to make very clear organisations' obligations in relation to the Sex Discrimination Act and in sexual discrimination and harassment in the workplace. So key, obviously critical topics that have been front of mind from I think probably the inception of the Me Too movement and then consolidated through the Brittany Higgins issue that has come front and centre that made it oh so clear to everyone that sexual harassment in the workplace is alive and well in all workplaces, including mm. our top levels of government, mm. and that it's no longer okay that we stand by and don't do anything. We're in the middle of an epidemic of reporting I'm not going to say it's an increase in incidents. I just think it's an, an increase in the reporting of those incidents. I will give great credit to the Me Too movement in bringing these incidents to the fore and women having a voice and mm -hmm. those voices being heard. And I think it was probably great timing for many things that we had a, a maybe a, a level of power of women in places that were able to listen and give credence to this voice. And mm. it's no longer okay that we sit by and let all of these incidents happen uh, without us making positive actions towards change. And whilst we could incidentally say there has been a, a duty for workplaces to didn't occur in the workplace before, uh, simply under the duties of our work health and safety legislation, which I would argue they are there already, I think it, we needed to make absolutely crystal clear that there is a positive duty to prevent this sort of thing going on in our workplace. And that is what the legislation aims to address. It's kind of extraordinary, isn't it, that in, in some ways that in 2021 we are just getting our heads around this. I think if you ask any woman, maybe any person in the workplace, but certainly any woman in the workplace, we know it's been an issue in the workplace for decades on decades, but it is a little bit sad in a way that it's 2020, 2021, actually, and this is when we're finally coming to grips with it. But anyway, that's just my editorial side note. Look, I would, I would reply to that, that mm. it is sad that we're getting onto it, but if you spoke to your grandmother about mm. what we are doing in our workplaces and the opportunities that we have and mm. how much the women's movement has moved in two generations. We've actually yeah. made extraordinary change and we have made increasingly rapid movement in towards equality. And if you are to look back at the society that existed for centuries, which was essentially a very patriarchal society, which everything was around men, uh, women were indeed their chattels, 
To this day, we still take their last names and give our children their last names. And so our whole society has been based on these elements of patriarchy. Our organisations have been built and run by men. And, you know, we have, over the last two generations, effected massive change. And I think we cannot be too critical of that. We can always say change is not fast enough and it's not enough and we always need to keep pushing but we also need to take a pause to go, wow, we are really making steady progress now. Mm-hmm. And when we look at things like boards and diversity levels and so forth, the latest watermark search report that came out in recent months, you know, the figures show that, you know, the change in our boards and our board structures have been massive. Since 2016, the number of ASX 300 companies with one or no female directors has halved. That's in five years. Mm. The number of boards which at least 30% of women has tripled. Boards with no women has lowered from 59 in 2016 to 14. So we are making progress, and I get you it's not fast enough, but it is fantastic we're living in this world. But I believe by the within six, ten years, I think that we need to, we will need to be moving on, and indeed we should be today, to not just Mm. focusing on gender diversity, but looking more at things like cultural diversity, which is something mm-hmm. else which sadly needs to address in our society. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly on all of that. And thank you for being the little voice of hope when I sometimes feel despair about these things. When We had a conversation the other day and you did exactly the same. So thank you for pulling me up in that as well. That's all right. I think that in change, we need to also give credit to where it's happening so that we don't get despondent. There's so much more we need to do this is a positive step towards increasing that rate of change. And I am, mm. you know, very much welcome these amendments. <laughs> so boards as the responsible part in an organisation for compliance or part of the responsibility for compliance, part of the, the system that sets the tone from the top, what do boards need to be aware of with the legislative changes and all of the other changes that are coming with respect at work? What do boards need to be aware of? So in terms of what the legislation changes, the Sexual Discrimination and Fair Work, otherwise known as the Respect at Work Bill, makes a sexual harassment a fackable offence and makes clearer under the Act that harassing a person on the basis of sex is strictly prohibited. Instead of six months, employees will now have 24 months to lodge a sexual harassment complaint with the Australian Human Rights Commission. That's a really important one because a lot of people, once they've, they've had something happen to them, they're traumatised and coming forward with a complaint isn't something that is necessarily the first thing that they may do. So creating that elongated time frame is very important. The bill includes a recognition that sexual harassment is a workplace health and safety issue. And like mm-hmm. bullying, it means that victims can apply for an order to stop sexual harassment through the Fair Work mm-hmm. Commission. Arguably, that was already there under the the rights of a person under the work health and safety legislation, but it has been made crystal clear so there is no argument or issue for dissent on that particular point. The new legislation broadens the definition of what constitutes work and by whom, and what that means is that vulnerable workers will be covered as well as people working from home. Employees are trying to prove that someone wasn't necessarily at work when they were harassed, in the past and therefore they weren't covered. So this 
amendment addresses that particular issue. The legislation also closes a loophole in relation to exempting public officials, which surprising to many judges, members of parliament and their staff were exempt from complaints under the Act, which is a really mind-blowing thing for many people. They are now no longer exempt from this legislation. So I think they're probably the main changes in relation to this new respected work report. Mm. I think there was hope and disappointment that a positive duty on companies to take steps to prevent sexual harassment, discrimination and victimisation was left out. And certainly both the Labor and the Greens Party were pushing for its inclusion. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if that was included at a later occasion. And certainly my advice to most any corporation would be that they really do need to be making shift in their cultures to ensure that prevention of sexual harassment is what they should be looking at, not just stopping it once it's actually happened. So maybe even though there's not the legal requirement at this stage, kind of acting as if there was a positive uh, responsibility on organisations to have that? Look, if I'm an organisation focused on my organisational culture, I do not want these things happening in my workplace. We've seen over and over the negative implications for a company's brand if our organisation does end up on the papers for all the wrong reasons. And whilst that's not a stick and what you want to be judged by and why you should be doing these things, organisations simply cannot afford for these things to be happening in their workplace, let Mm. alone the emotive issue for a staff member that we don't want our staff members to be going through this sort of experience. Yeah. So I think that increasingly organisations are going to have to move away from doing the minimal of legislation to sort of check that box to move towards what is the right thing for their staff for creating a healthy workplace. And a healthy workplace has no room whatsoever for any type of sexual harassment. So ensuring our staff are trained and understand what is and isn't sexual harassment and what is and isn't okay is utterly essential to their ongoing viability and should be forming a critical part of their ESG policies and guidance at the board level. What are organisations doing to build that safe culture in all ways in the workplace? What should boards be thinking about? What should they be prompting? What should they be doing, whether it's the boards or indeed if boards have a people and culture type committee? What should they be thinking about to make sure the operation in an organisation is reflecting a really positive culture. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think we've we've undergone momentous change in the last, I'm going to say, three years, Mm. where investors and stakeholders are really increasing pressures on companies to be reflective and to even be leaders in the community within which they Mm. operate. And Mm -hmm. increasingly we're seeing consumers pressure organisations by choosing to spend their dollars with organisations with diversity and ethics and a good culture behind the way which they operate, they will quickly move with their feet if any sort of adverse consequence occurs in an organisation. And so increasingly the perspective of boards and management, and indeed we saw through the Financial Services Royal Commission and the results of that and the recommendations from that, is that governance and culture are critical to the ongoing long-term planning of an organisation 
and indeed strictly tied to their long-term shareholder value. Mm -hmm. So issues that maybe were once seen as fluffy, mm -hmm. uh, and I put that in inverted commas, are now increasingly becoming business critical. And I've heard people say, oh, this ESG thing, it's a diversion from our strategy and how we can strategize moving forward. I would say that if ESG issues are not front and central to your strategy, then your long-term strategy is extremely flawed. Yeah. So in terms of how that looks and how we start to change that perspective, I actually think that compliance needs to be reframed so that we're not looking at it as this nasty box checking activity, but we start to look towards it in terms of integrity of conduct and how we go about operating from a what's best for the person is what's best for the organisation type approach. I love that. Just the switching of language from compliance to integrity, because what do we need to do to be compliant, I think really does kind of maybe not encourage a ticker box, but brings to mind a ticker box. Whereas what do we need to do to operate with integrity? Where, where's the integrity in our systems? Where's the integrity in our organisation? has a very different feel to it. It does. And, and I first learned this very early in my days at SafeTrack. And we have a wonderful client in Air New Zealand. And mm. Air New Zealand were the first organisation that I worked with to know that they changed the term compliance training to integrity training. Mm. And I believe when you tell your staff to do their compliance training, you get this drained, do I have to look and feel? And, oh, okay, I've done that. I've done that training. I've checked that off. Whereas integrity isn't just about organisational integrity. It's actually about personal integrity. Mm. And by reframing the language and the wording with which we call it, you actually start to put on individual people a sense of their own belief, accountability and integrity in the way they act and conduct themselves. And it makes them take more ownership for their actions and makes them think about, well, does this feel right to me? Is this at me acting with it? And in actual fact, that's the shift that we need all staff to move to if we really want to change culture. Now, we did introduce the whistleblowing legislation a short while ago, which mm -hmm. allowed employees to know that they have a place to go to report behaviours that are not in line with that compliance or integrity culture. And that was necessary because so many organisations were not willing to listen and act on reports and then treat the person that was reporting that conduct without recrimination. And it's amazing that a number of the companies that I work with or we work with say that their whistleblower line, whilst they have them, doesn't get used. Mm. And you say, oh, that's not you say, well, it is great because people aren't using their whistleblower line. They're actually using their internal reporting lines. Yeah. And their internal reporting lines means that they're going to managers, they're going to the compliance team, they're going to their legal team, wherever it is, they feel free to say, hey, I've noticed this. This isn't right. We need to do something about it. The organisation says, great, thanks so much for reporting that. Uh, that's a good point. We'll look at that. We'll address it. Here's what the action we're going to take. This is what we're going to do. And mm -hmm. that, to me, is when you reach that milestone, that's when you're starting to form a great culture. And it's only when we've reached those cultures where people feel 
free to stand up and report without fear of recrimination that people feel they're working for a place that takes on the integrity and the language and the requirements of legislation without checking a box, without rolling out training just to just to have done it, but to mm. actually train staff in what is and isn't right and that if mm. something's not right, that they want to know about it and they're going to do something about that. And that's where we want to get to. Yes, yes, yes. Here, here. Who are the organisations that are getting this right? And what are their boards doing that helps them get it right? I think the organisations who are getting it right at the moment are ones who have been doing it for a long time mm-hmm. and who have been focused on this for a long time. One thing that is important for organisations to understand is getting to this culture is a journey. You cannot overnight and boards cannot overnight say we're going to have a good culture mm-hmm. because that's not how it starts. And I think for some organisations, the point of making cultural change is sometimes overwhelming in terms of the size of that change that needs to occur. And we're almost scratching heads saying, where do we even start? Mm -hmm. And I could give you examples of volunteer organisations that are staffed mostly by volunteer gentlemen Mm -hmm. who are perhaps farmers from the country um, or have worked not necessarily in corporations so haven't been exposed to a lot of the new language and a lot of the new gender diversity expectations in organisations. And so they come from that very strict patriarchal background. And these volunteer organisations are filled with these types of people volunteering their time. Now, to try and change the culture in an organisation like that can be Mm. truly an overwhelming thing to do. I will Mm. also say that political parties, our Mm. government is a wholly patriarchal organisation that, yes, we've had women representatives join it, but have we really looked at making sizable change? Mm. And workplaces where they have people uh, as a gathering point and people from many organisations are still providing a workplace but the people gathering in that workplace are not necessarily their employees. Mm -hmm. Getting these sort of organisations to insist on cultural change is very difficult from a strict compliance point of view. You're saying we want you to behave in this way, but you're not my employee, so I can't actually tell you that. Likewise with volunteers. Mm -hmm. I'm not paying you money to do this. I'm asking you to give your time, Um, but I want you and I insist on you act this way. What's your retribution? Are you going to fire them? <laughs> so, so there's some really difficult situations that a society we need to be sensitive to. And we get a lot of these organisations come to us and say, what do we do? Where do we even start? Mm. And my point to any of those organisations would be you have to start somewhere. Yeah, just start. Just start. That's right. So starting can look like And some of the best ways of starting is to listen. So Mm. first of all, we listen. We listen to the experiences of those who may be infringed or feel maligned. We listen to those who aren't and why everything is great. Then we start to share those experiences with each of the other parties so that we can start to try and build some empathy. Then we can start by talking about what the laws now say and what they are and what the ramifications are for people if the laws are breached. 
and that these are no longer just civil ramifications, they're potentially criminal ramifications as well. So the impacts of transgressing legislation uh, are very, very serious. Mm -hmm. And so these are the ways that we can start. And that messaging and how we do that is really important that we make it specific for the organisation and the situation in question. And I think one of the reasons that training and especially compliance training has been given such a bad name in the past is because so often it's generic off-the-shelf training that has nothing to do with your organisation, it has nothing to do mm. with the person's role. We have to move away from that mm. and we have to make it specific, we have to make it relevant, we have to make it appropriate to the audience that we're training. We have to make it not really, really long, especially if we've got a learner audience where people have got low levels of education. We need to make it short, sharp. We need to look at translations. We need to look at video. We need to look at audio. We need to look at all these different forms. And sometimes doing that really well actually costs quite a lot of money. Yeah. And so when I speak to someone and say, well, we've got to do training, and then I say, okay, well, this is how we should do it. They go, oh, no, we don't have money for that. So if boards are looking to make change, they need to start opening the purse strings. So this needs to be a priority. So how we start creating change starts with devoting money to exactly these type of initiatives. And I would say it's not the cost of doing it. I would be asking myself, what is the cost of not doing it? Properly? Yeah. Because the potential ramifications and implications of getting this wrong are getting more and more serious by the day. Allocate the resources boards, make sure you put it in there. I think in addition to this, we are not very far off a place where we see that diversity becomes reportable benchmarks for companies and we're not just looking at profitability of organisations. I think we're really, really close to starting to link and indeed we're starting to see it in some organisations that executive remuneration is linked to diversity and targets and other sort of ESG factors. That is closing in on boards very, very quickly. That shareholders are going to vote on these factors alongside profitability. Mm -hmm. So I think with the expectation of a highly demanding consumer market and the pressure that's coming from that market, boards would be prudent to be understanding that this is not a nice to have anymore. This is becoming essential. Oh, Deb, I have loved our conversation. What are the key points you want people to take away from what we've talked about today? Okay, so key points are this is a journey and mm. we're all on it. And very few organisations have this right. Mm. It is a journey of improvement and we're all on it and we're all going to continue to get better. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter so much where you're on that journey, it's that you've started it. That would be point one. The second point that I would make is that as to how you start on that journey needs to be a consultative and inclusive process. And it needs to be one with suitable budgets associated with it that enable key changes to be made. Thirdly, we need to ensure that we're, we're changing to a point where our staff feel free to report issues without recrimination. 
-hmm. and that those reports are things that our organisation values as opposed to wants to shun from. Yeah. So the ability to do that, when we've reached that point, we know that we are well on our journey. And I would say that we need to start reframing compliance in terms of integrity of behaviour, think is a critical thing for us all to do. If I could relabel what we do as integrity training and people would still find us on Google, I would. Mm. Um, I would like to see that shift. And I would like to see that organisations are making compliance about them and about their organisation and about how they go about these issues, about personalising it, and it's about taking the human element out of, leg- out of the legislation and applying it to your organisation and then creating appropriate materials that actually help to shift the needle. And is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Sure, Helia. I could refer people. I did a recent podcast uh, with Fear and Greed on mm-hmm. uh, cleaning up corporate culture. Uh, that's mm-hmm. an interesting listen. There's also quite a lot of articles on the Safe Track website. And, of course, we have uh, remarkable staff that are well-trained in assisting organisations with this shift. And uh, we, if you refer to the SafeTrack website, www.safetrack.com, uh, there's a lot of articles and resources on there as well. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure we put a link both to the podcast and to the SafeTrack website in the show notes so people can find it. Thank you, Deb. It has been a very wide-ranging conversation, <laughs> um, but one with just so many wonderful pieces of gold in there. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with the Take On Board community today. Thank you so much for talking with me. I've really enjoyed it. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.